So when you're scattering that fastball around and you're, you know, the elite of the elite are in there 51% of the time in the strike zone. So if you're a 16-year-old, and I use this uh, example with the with the 14-year-old Carson that I just mentioned of showing him what the big leaguers do and understanding you're not going to be pinpoint, but if you can change speeds off that fastball and just get it in the area code, you're now either going to get more swing and misses because they're sitting on something hard in a fastball count or you're going to cause them to have soft contact and get the ball in play and lessen that pitch count on the day. Hey, this is More Than Velocity with Ryan Croton, Jordan Oseguera, and I'm Bart Pear. And today we're going to talk about secondary pitches. Um, you know, everybody's asking us, you know, you hear things about curveballs and are they dangerous for underage kids and, and when should they learn this? And, you know, is, you know, we're going to get into all of that today, kind of break it down. Um, first, we'll start out, we'll kind of just explain how the different pitches you can throw are, are, are grouped before we start the conversation so you kind of understand and we're all on the same page and then we're going to get into just about everything we can think of around how to perform these and how to do it safely, biomechanics and everything else. So Jordan, um, since you've worked with thousands of pitchers, um, let's just start with how you break break out all the pitches that you use with, with your the people you work with. So some of the common terms you're going to hear when it comes to talking about the different categories of pitches is you're going to have, you know, fastballs, which that's going to be between your four seamers, your two seamers, your cutters, things like that. And then you're going to have breaking balls, which is predominantly your curveballs, your sliders, uh, slurves, depending on, on that arm action and the shape you're putting on that. And then you have off-speed pitches, which are going to be your change-ups, your splits, um, there's no right or wrong way to describe these things. You could even just say primary and secondary, putting primary as all your fastballs and secondary into your breaking balls and off-speed pitches. Really, at the end of the day, so long as you, the player, understand what it is you need to get done, that's kind of the big thing when it comes down to understanding the different types of pitches that are out there um, and understanding what specifically it is you're developing in that aspect and how to differentiate between those two, two or even three categories, depending on however you want to put it. And the big thing with that is to be a starting pitcher, you need something hard. So you need something in the in the fastball category. You need something soft, so something either in that breaking ball category. And you need something that's going to be changing speeds off the fastball as well, which is going to be that off-speed or change-up or split category. So in a perfect world, I'm obsessed with starting pitching. Um as anyone who's listened knows, I think it's kind of one of the, the the flaws of all development systems is that it's not it's not that easy to develop starters. But really good starting pitchers have something hard, something soft, and something they can change speeds without that fastball. Very cool. So if I'm let's let's talk with young, just you know, thirteen year old, and and how many pitches do they have let's let's quickly talk about platoon neutral and those type of things and then we can get into some of the biomechanics stuff so platoon neutral is really important and for me the three pitches that any pitcher should be focusing on until they get to the higher levels are a four seam fastball a curveball as well as a changeup and the reason for that is those are what we call platoon neutral which i know we've discussed that uh previously but if someone hasn't heard us talk about that before, it just means it plays equally well against same-handedness and opposite-handedness of the hitter. 
So if you're a right-hander and you know predominantly you're really good against righties, if you have more of a platoon neutral mix, you're going to be equally beneficial against right-handers and left-handers. And that's obviously an oversimplification, but platoon neutral just means you're going to have a better chance of getting both-handed hitters out. Uh, so the better you can start developing platoon neutral early, the better off you're going to be. You know, I, I, I don't get on social media too much. Um, so sometimes I'll get on there. I'll, I'll scroll through some of these academies and things that I'm following and I'll see they have a, you know, a, a nine year old developing a slider and they're talking about how they've added, you know, X amount of sweep to that pitch and they've done all these great things and they've got it on Rapsodo and they're showing all the proof behind this, but they're in a sense, giving that guy a lessened probability to be a starting pitcher. They're starting to develop him into a non-platoon neutral player by hammering out a pitch that's traditionally not platoon neutral unless you throw it you know, in the upper 80s, low 90s pretty much every time you throw it and can really make the thing move as well. So it's really important at a young age to understand, not, not, to the, not at extreme depth of what platoon neutral is, but to understand the importance of platoon neutral and really focus on those and hammer those pitches out. And Ryan, if you want to talk a little bit about uh, the changeup, I know all of us kind of really view the changeup as a really valuable pitch. I don't know if you want to want to jump on that for a second. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the one thing that I done, we, we have a blog post that's out there um, that has explored the effectiveness of the changeup. And so, you know, when you look at social media, you're always looking at uh, posts that have the radar gun in the view and then they got the pitcher on the mound and then the pitcher hits a peak velocity and sets a PR personal record and everybody's jumping around clapping and everybody's so excited. But what people don't understand is that once that athlete becomes a professional, the fastball alone isn't going to take them to a higher level. It's just not. Um, the results from a study that I had done from StatCast data and people can go on StatCast uh, the Baseball Savant uh, website, MLB Baseball Savant, you can you can download any data you want, but um, they basically categorize offensive performance versus each pitch. And when you look at, you know, the basic changeup stats, you can see that that on average, a changeup is about seven miles an hour less than a fastball. And when you look at the performance against the changeup, the weighted on base percentage, which is, is essentially a, a conglomerate offensive statistic, is 50 points less against changeups. So batters aren't as effective getting on base, the weighted on, on, bat, uh, on base percent average. Then the exit velocities. So the exit velocities are about four miles per hour slower off the bat. So the ball doesn't get contacted as hard with, with the changeup. Um, the hitting distance is about 50 feet shorter with a changeup, okay, than a fastball. And then what I think is a really important uh, metric that they have on, on Baseball Savant is the hard hit percentage. And the hard hit percentage is about 5% uh, lower. So, you know, essentially a fastball gets hit 37% uh, hard with a fastball, but only 32.5% with a changeup. So overall, you know, the changeup is an effective pitch that can complement the fastball. And unfortunately, we don't develop these pitches until late. And a lot of pitchers that come into minor league baseball, they, it's like, it's a tough pitch to, to coach for some reason. You know, a lot of athletes can't do it. And most relievers, you know, they're throwing sliders and fastballs. They're throwing all hard pitches. 
you know, getting into the biomechanical effects of, of change up, and I'm just going to touch on them because we're, we're talking about them, is that they, they have shown, studies have shown that there is a statistically significant difference in load, meaning that the, the change up has lower stress to the shoulder and elbow. So it's, in, it's decreasing the force that's imparted on those joints. And, you know, the way I see it is if, if it's like strength and conditioning, let's say a fastball is your max effort lift and you're doing your max effort lift more than any other lift that you have in your uh, in your training uh, design. Now, you need to be able to offset that max effort lift with underloading and, and still get a training benefit. You know, you're not stopping training completely. And the change up is like that underloading where, you know, the athlete is still maintaining competitiveness they're still achieving the pitch counts. Um, that are required for the position where they're starter reliever. But as they're throwing these change-ups, you're seeing a, a marketable difference in the load. And just as an aside, you know, in my previous experience looking at um, professional metrics, that there is a reduction in injury list days with an increase in change-up use beyond 11%. So that's an important measure that I think teams should be striving for, and especially at the younger levels, um, to promote more change-up use. And I, I really think in the developmental levels, they should be pitching the change-up 20 to 25%. They should practice that pitch. So for the layman, you're saying that throwing a good change-up will, will make you a better pitcher and it will protect your arm. Yep. That's a great way to summarize it. So one, one thing I want to jump in there too is the change-up is not a pitch you need to have precision command and control with. It's a pitch you just need to get it in and around the strike zone. So especially for younger players, you know, that there, there's not a lot of guys just hammering the target when it comes down to it. You go watch a youth baseball game, you watch a high school game, you even watch college games. There's not a lot of guys on those staffs that are just right in the chest of the catcher every single time. Even you watch minor leaguers and big leaguers. It's not that easy to do. And when you – I pulled some information uh, for one of the guys that I was working with. Um, his name's Carson. Big kid, uh, never thrown a changeup before in his life. Uh, he's always been a fastball, curveball guy. Can really spin a breaking ball, but we took that opportunity to, when we're building up that throwing volume, start working on a changeup. And I pulled some information. Again, baseball savant's great. I pulled a whole bunch of stuff off of strike percent versus K-zone percent and all these other things. And on average, I took about, I think it was about seven or eight years of data over the last seven or eight seasons for all your pitch types, and it was about 51% of the time was kind of that heart of where a big leaguer is throwing a pitch in the strike zone. So roughly 5 out of every 10, 51 out of every 100 is going to be in the strike zone for the full mix of pitches across starters and relievers. But what what's great about that is the changeup, you don't need to be precise. So if there's a day you're a little bit wild, that's an easy way to get into that 25-ish percent, 20 to 25% change-up usage, especially at the younger levels, because you don't need to be precise. So when you're scattering that fastball around, and you're, you know, the elite of the elite are in there 51% of the time in the strike zone. So if you're a 16-year-old, and I use this uh, example with the with the 14-year-old Carson that I just mentioned, of showing him what the big leaguers do, and understanding you're not going to be pinpoint, but if you can change speeds off that fastball and just get it in the area code. You're now either going to get more swing and misses because they're sitting on something hard in a fastball count, or you're going to cause them to have soft contact and get the ball in play and lessen that pitch count on the day. 
So there's an easy way to get that into a competition style atmosphere. And you know, I want to go back a little bit because Ryan was saying, you know, at the at the pro level, there's just not a lot of guys throwing changeups in the minor leagues. And it all goes back to, and I agree with this saying 100%, is there's good curveball hitters, but nobody hits a good curveball. And, you know, if you can spin a breaking ball, that that goes a long way. It Scouts love it. Everyone always just assumes, hey, we'll teach a changeup, but not everyone is great at teaching a changeup. You know, it's something I had to put a lot of effort into learning. I've, I've picked a whole bunch of resources off of it to find out the best way to, to improve changeups. And the one thing that I can say is if somebody needs to learn a curveball, I can teach them a curveball. Changeups, like I, I had to pull a lot of resources to get good at teaching a changeup, and I still have a lot of room to go on that. But by taking those kids when they're younger and hammering out a changeup as the primary tool of development and keeping a breaking ball in the holster, but we're keeping the changeup out of the holster. So we're using that and using that and using that. Number one, we're able to get more practice reps in because it's going to be offloading the arm, like Ryan said. And number two, we're putting something that's not really that easy to develop at the forefront of development, and we're learning how to throw a fastball around the zone, not perfectly in it, but around and in the zone. And then if we have a changeup that's around and in the zone, we're going to get a lot of hitters out all the way up through the college level. And then once we've done that, we're, we're comfortable with those, then we start focusing a little more on the breaking ball. And now we have something that's platoon neutral with three pitch types, and we're in and around the zone, and we always have a way to get a hitter out. I know I got a little long-winded on that. Um, I'm hoping it made sense. <laughs> no, it did. I mean, I mean, my job here on the show is to ask the question the non-baseball expert would ask. So um, the changeup, Ryan, you were saying the changeup is, is really – a great pitch, especially, you know, looking at the pro stats and stuff. Is it as good a pitch at the, um, at the high school level? I mean, where there's, you know, those kids are variability and speeds and control and everything else. Does it lose some of its effectiveness at that level? Or I'm just trying to gauge why not more kids throw it. I mean, Jordan has worked a lot more. He'd be the better person to ask as far as, you know, what, what is seen on the mound. Um, but, you know, what I'm looking, when I'm looking at development programs, so, you know, kind of talking to athletes um, that we've had, you know, signed at the pro level and kind of understanding their upbringing, there's really not a ton of attention outside of throwing fastballs. I mean, when you think about the programming that that is being introduced to high school athletes, you know, universal across the nation. Um, and, and also in, in other parts of the world, you know, we have velocity enhancement programs, you know, and, and now we're taking, I think we're taking a distribution of time away from developing other pitches. So there's probably a reason why high school athletes are not as effective throwing secondary pitches because they're not really focused on it. You know, the whole, the, well, it's not the as sexy, emphasis. that's for sure. No. Yeah. The whole, the whole emphasis um, is, is throwing as hard as possible, you know, and, and, and scouts, you know, scouts have taken, and I've talked to some scouts, they've taken pitchers that have one pitch. All they have is the heater, you know, and they're, they're, they're a, a one trick pony. And, um, it's, it's something that we're, we're prioritizing ahead of pitchability. And, you know, what Jordan's talking about, being able to use pitches in platoon neutral situations, having command of the baseball, being able to mix speeds, understanding the game, from being on the mound. And I think that that high school pitcher um, has not put enough dedicated work into that. 
you know, and as Jordan's saying, like Jordan is a phenomenal coach, but he's even saying he's got to learn, you know, how to develop certain pitches and, and understanding what, what grips work well for certain pitchers and what arm actions are, you know, effective for them. And, you know, I've, if Jordan's saying that he's got issues with these and he's continually needing to grow, I imagine at you know lower levels of baseball, um, there's a big challenge with with teaching these secondary pitches. So uh, that's kind of my impression of of why you know the high school athlete may not have the ability to command and control the uh, the auxiliary pitches. Yeah, just to touch on that is Bart took the word that I was going to use is they're not as sexy when it comes down to it, and it's a great way to describe it because what people are going to care about when it comes to recruiting an athlete is your ability to strike hitters out. And that's what you do with a breaking ball. Breaking ball is not made to induce the soft double play. It's made to strike a guy out with the bases loaded and to leave runners stranded. That's what it's for. A changeup, I look at it as almost a get out of jail free card from when you're behind in the count. And if you were, you know, in a three Oh count, a two, one count, Runner on second base, you just slop one of those things over the plate and just let them, you know, hit an F8 and get yourself a secondary out and then go for your strikeout. But it's a get out of jail free card. And a lot of people don't understand that is they always they assume there's only one way to get a hitter out, and it's it's a strikeout. And then one of the other issues you run into why this this becomes a situation, especially at the high school level, and I don't blame the coaches for it, you know, I don't blame them at all, is the defenses aren't necessarily great. And that's a combination of not everyone is a shortstop when it comes down to it. And the fields in high school aren't always well manicured and groomed. You're going to get some hops that are a little scary to get behind. Um, you know, and I know Ryan's like a gold glove defender out there, but you know, when those, those fields on at, at the spring training complex to start getting chewed up from 10,000 ground balls during spring, even Ryan's not getting behind those, you know? So there's going to be some errors made. And the more balls that are put in play means the higher opportunity for an error. So a lot of the times coaches, not just in, in high school, but in college, are calling the pitches from the bench. And when they come down to it, they go, oh, we, we just want to get guys out. We don't want the ball in play. So they're just going to call a lot of breaking balls. They're going to call a lot of fastballs for the guys that throw hard. And they're going to call a lot of breaking balls for the guys that can spin them. And I think that's one of the reasons we see a lessened amount of change-ups. And again, I don't blame, I'm not putting blame on anybody for that because I've called pitches and man, in the college level, when guys got on base and I knew, you know, I'll, I'll give a shout out to one of the guys. He actually works for Joe Bimel. His name's Sean Isaac. And I had to call pitches. If there was a runner on third base, I knew if I just threw 12 straight sliders, we we're going to, we we're going to strike out three guys in a row. And you can look up Sean Isaac's numbers through, you know, minor league baseball, as well as when he pitched for me at the Ivy league of the West coast at Vanguard. That's how Ryan likes to refer to it. He, he was punching out pretty much everyone in their dog. If they stepped up the plate, they were getting struck out. And it's because when we needed to, we could lean on a slider and we knew who was going to get struck out. Um, but, you know, again, just a random shout out. Sean Isaac uh, works for Joe Bimel. They're huge promoters of the arm care system as well. So uh, might as well throw that in there while we're at it. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about breaking balls. I mean, you – and this I think is something that you and Ryan – might disagree a little and you're talking about um developing three pitches you know the the fastball four seam change up and uh and a curveball of some kind and and you know i'm gonna ask are curveballs dangerous for younger kids to learn get in there ryan yeah so you know there's a study done 
um, in 2013 is like a comprehensive study. The title is called The Curveball is a Risk Factor as a Systematic Review. So, you know, people that don't aren't aware of the research world, systematic reviews basically are a research paper that that scours the literature for all studies related to the topic. And so this particular research article had looked at EMG studies, so muscle activation studies, 3D biomechanics. They also looked at epidemiology studies, so looking at surveys and basically assessing, um, you know, risk assessment related to throwing curveballs. You know, and a lot of the studies showed that the forces on the elbow and shoulder were actually less with the curveball. Now, there were some that showed there was no difference, but what we can conclude is that the curveball is not any more stressful than a fastball delivery or a slider delivery. Okay. Um, and uh, the other thing is that there were a lot of studies that did not find a significant association between pitching a curveball and upper extremity pain and injury. There was only one study that had showed that it increased shoulder pain. So not elbow pain, but shoulder pain in throwing a curveball. And, and this study has also been criticized by having confounders and, you know, the athlete had to recall how many curveballs they've thrown. And a lot of young athletes, they're not going to really, you know, think about, uh, you know, how many curveballs did I, did I pitch if they're not taking it down with a pitch chart. So, you know, it's, it's really, it's not conclusive right now. And I, I think learning curveball mechanics, you know, one, practicing pitch mechanics at a young age, like we talk about in our pitch strong guidelines, you know, kids shouldn't pitch till they're 10. They should focus on the fundamentals of pitching, you know, having the ability to locate the ball, not, you know, thinking about throwing it past a batter. And then, they're, you know, they're throwing 30 pitches and the batter's waiting for these balls that are going over their head and into the ground. Um, and, and, you know, you know, I would say before the age of 13, you know, the current recommendations are wait till they're 13 years old. But I'd say before the age of 13, they should be learning how to throw them properly. You know, and we need coaching programs to teach pitchers how to throw curveballs properly. You know, I see some pitchers that take the ball out with their thumb up over the ball rather than their thumb down. You know, that improves basically for some of them the grip, but also the arm position. You know, what I've seen with pitchers that have had, you know, elbow or shoulder soreness that they've think they've attributed to the curveball is they manipulate the ball too much with their wrist. It's not thrown. It's like it's guided too much by, you know, excessive wrist and hand action. Um, and that's what can cause potential stress to the area. So, you know, that's what the literature says. So I'll turn that over to Jordan. I, I agree with that. You know, I, the big thing I see and I thought it was something that had finally gone away in baseball was the way curveballs were taught, the way sliders were taught was they wanted people to twist the doorknob at release point. And, you know, when you break it down in a thousand frames a second, there's, you know, it used to just only be through slow motion, you know, 3D motion analysis got to pay 200 grand for a system to do it. Now you can go buy an Edgertronic. You can even see this on an iPhone now. The new iPhones that are out there are really good at breaking down slow-mo video. I have the guys I work with, I don't expect them to go buy an Edutronic camera. They'll film on the iPad, they'll film on whatever they have, I'll break it down in another app that I can go frame by frame on, and I can see exactly how their wrist is working. But the high-end guys, the really good people who throw breaking balls, have a good stable wrist at release point. And again, this is something I thought we were well past teaching in baseball of, of the doorknob, twist the doorknob, really 
pull through that doorknob as you're doing it. And that's what tears up the arm. Because when you're throwing, you're going to naturally pronate after every every pitch you throw. There's going to be that natural pronation, right, Ryan? Yeah. yeah you're going to have that pronation. Included. And mm-hmm. when you start twisting this way and then pronating back, that's a lot of force going on, you know, in a really quick amount of time that's not good on the elbow. It's not good on the arm in general. If that wrist is firm, that's where you're going to see those less in stress on the arm. Because now you're going to have a little lower arm speed when you're throwing a, a curveball, not necessarily a slider, but you're going to have lessened arm speed on a curveball when you compare that to a fastball, which is where you see those lessened forces when thrown properly. When it's thrown improperly, it wouldn't shock me if those are the ones that have the higher forces. So I think there needs to be, like Ryan says, a really good understanding of how to do the basics of, of teaching those pitches. Because you know a lot of people don't understand that that is not what creates spin on a breaking ball. It's your ability to, to spin it in the right direction that is going to create the movement. And one thing I wanted to ask you, Jordan, is you know, what are some key cues that you use with athletes? Like, you know, I, I like that analogy that you use. I mean, it's not a good analogy, but, you know, spinning the doorknob. But like, what are some key cues that you have used in the past with athletes in uh, helping them improve their breaking ball? I think the easiest one is I I like to have the idea of throw the top half of the ball. So what I mean by that is if you're a pitching coach worth their salt, you're always going to have a ball around you for some, for some reason. But if you're throwing the top half of the ball, you can see there's more of the ball hanging out on the top. It's going to get your thumb and your finger involved to where you start getting that opportunity to manipulate through the wrist. But if you just adjust to where now you're throwing the top half of the ball. So if it's, you know, the equator of the balls through the middle, your thumb and middle finger are above the equator, it's going to stop you from being able to manipulate the ball. So that for me is the, is the key thing. When you're learning a breaking ball, throw the top half of it. You're probably going to spike it into the ground and your catch partner is going to hate you for a little bit. But again, it's a development system. You're not supposed to be a big leaguer tomorrow, which is why there's not any 14-year-olds pitching in the big leagues. I mean, fact check me on that. I don't believe that that there's any 14-year-olds in the big leagues currently because they're still learning. But, you know, make the practice sessions difficult on yourself. And when I say throw the top half, I'm not saying do this. You know, just find that equator of the ball, get a little higher on it, and make sure you have a good firm wrist when you're throwing it. And your arm action, you can start adjusting the wrist position, but not the wrist manipulation at release, if that makes sense. But that that for me is the key foundation throw the top half of the baseball on a breaking ball. So, I mean, let's talk about the effectiveness of, of the grip. And, and you know, that's a great image for them to work on. What else are you doing around just better grip, I mean, for all the different pitches people are throwing? So since we're talking on breaking balls in general, always start with gripping it too tight. If you grip it tight, you are going to spin it better. And, you know, those are some studies that I've done on my own. There's been a bunch of other, you know, third-party research that's been done. Nothing necessarily published in that sense. But the tighter you do grip the the breaking ball, the better it's going to spin. Um, And if you get that better spin in the right direction, it's going to give you better movement. But you have to find how tight you can grip the ball while still controlling it. And that's why I say always err on the side of gripping it too tight in practice. Because you can always lessen up that force, but you can't necessarily add more on. So find that line between movement and control 
and then continually adjust off of that while you're developing it. And then, you know, you can keep fine tuning that as you get older. Um, for change-ups, you know, just just find something that's going to help you out with that that movement off the ball, whether that's a four-seam change-up, a two-seam change-up, you know, a fosh ball, whatever you got to do to start. Some guys, especially the younger players, Ryan was talking about, they don't you don't want guys throwing off the mound in the sense until they're at least uh, ten. You said correct. Mm-hmm. So you know, for someone who's who's younger, you know, they might have smaller hands. They may not be able to throw a full-on true circle change-up or you know, a two seam change up, whatever it may be. So find the grip that's comfortable for you. And that's a big thing is there's no such thing as the perfect grip. I've run into guys who pitched a long time in the big leagues that threw everything off of a four seam grip. They threw a four seam fastball here. They would throw their curveball here. And when it came to their changeup, they would just manipulate off to the side so they could get the, the right spin on it. They pitched for, you know, over nine seasons in the big leagues out of the bullpen. So there's no such thing as the right grip, but there's a right grip for you. And when you start getting into those pitch development tools, whatever it is you're using, you're going to find what that right grip is. Um, You're going to be able to know if you're spinning it in the right direction or simply just drawing a line on the ball. Understanding which direction you can get that line on the ball to spin is going to tell you if your grip is working for you or against you. I got a quick question for you, Jordan. In terms of the utilization of um, you know, pitches, what would be, so if you had, let's say you took a pitcher with very high velocity, you know, versus a pitcher that's got very low relative velocity to their age group or competitive category, what would be a good sequence for each? What would so be like an ideal Everyone sequence? loves to talk about sequence, right? And front offices hate it because they can't quantify it. And if they can't fully quantify it, they don't want to always put that value and in stock into it. But there's some really good books out there, and if you talk to 100 people in the baseball world, 50 people are going to love the book, and 50 people are going to hate the book with a passion and try to get the book canceled, since that's what everyone likes to do. Is It's called Downright Filthy Pitching. Really good book. There's a whole series of them, and I'm a firm believer that it's a piece of the puzzle. It's not the whole puzzle, but it's a piece of the puzzle, and it explains how guys – You know, my, my favorite example is Jamie Moyer pitched for so long with you know the stuff that he had when he was pitching towards the end of his career stat cast was just coming out and they're showing how little movement he had on his pitches even compared to what major league average was and we all know he was throwing 78 to 82 and none of those pitches were blazing speed but what he could do is take what his pitch did for movement and make it look different to the hitter's eye so he used something called effective velocity and again this is where people you know the, the hills that everyone's choosing to die on for some reason on this, I don't fully understand it. To go, it's absolutely fake or it's absolutely true. It's definitely a piece of the puzzle, but it's di- very difficult to quantify because sequences change. So in a nutshell is each one of your pitches you throw based on where it is in the strike zone and where the hitter stands on the plate is going to be perceived differently based on where that's located. So... If it's an 80-mile-an-hour fastball down the middle to the hitter's eye and the radar gun, it's going to show up as 80 miles an hour. But if that pitch is up and in, it's going to be 80 miles an hour on the gun, but it's going to be perceived as 86 or 89 miles an hour depending on who you want to talk to about effective velocity. And if it's down and away, it could be you know 76 miles an hour 
to the hitter's eye, but 80 on the gun. So when you have guys like Jamie Moore that understand how to change the angle of how they're throwing the ball, and when I say angle, I'm not talking arm angle. I'm talking the angle of what the hitter perceives, and then mixing that in with change-ups and breaking balls and keeping a spread. And, you know, you read downright filthy pitching. I want to say it was about a 12-mile-an-hour spread on the minimum to get soft contact. And if you could keep the effective velocity to what the hitter's perceiving at 18 or greater miles an hour, it was almost always a swing and miss. So that's how guys who are short on stuff, who can learn how to use effective velocity, can still get hitters out at the higher level. There's still a few of those guys that are pitching, but you know you had an arm care IQ on uh, velocity development, and it was really good. Um, I actually just went back and watched it today, took a couple extra notes on it and things like that. Uh, but you, were, you mentioned in there how scouting has been so specific about going after velocity right now. And one of the reasons for that is it's quantifiable. It's not going to get you fired at the end of the day if you go tell the front office to draft someone throwing 98. That doesn't get anyone fired. Hmm. But if you tell someone to go draft someone throwing 86 because they have really good effective velocity and that player doesn't pan out, that gets some people fired. <laughs> you know, So it's, it's one of those things like you have to really quantify that to place a bet on it. And that's why for me, it's, you, know, you have guys that, that get to the big leagues that know how to do this. Um, one example... A guy who I had a chance to work with for, for a bit, pitched for a couple organizations in the big leagues, his name was Troy Scribner. Not an overpowering fastball. He didn't in understand effective velocity, but when he was pitching well intuitively, he threw to effective velocity. Um, Tommy Malone, still pitching in the big leagues here and there. Really good with effective velocity. you know. And, and those are guys that whether they understand it or not, they make a career out of doing that. And it's really important and, you know, it's not just your pitch shape. It's not just your ability to hit the target. It's ability to hit the target as well as change what the hitter's perceiving on that. And then one example I like to use all the time is A.J. Burnett. And he had hands down one of the best sliders, I think, probably in the history of the game. But there was a ton of time that he would go fastball down and away. And then he'd try to rip that slider off the hip of a right-hander and end it on the inside of the plate for a two-striker. And that guy just you know, pulls it down the line for a double. And you're like, how does that happen? That thing was nasty. Well, he took, we'll just say, a 92-mile-an-hour slider in an 86-mile-an-hour – or a 92-mile-an-hour fastball down and away, paired that with an 86-mile-an-hour slider in, and he ran it into the spreads. And that's where you start running into that was bad usage of effective velocity. But when that guy would throw to effective velocity – People were swinging at things seven feet out of the zone. You know, if you haven't seen the videos of A.J. Burnett uh, in between innings hitting cars and doing stuff like that when they're driving up behind home plate in the mid innings, you got to go look that up because that's just fun. Um, but there's some really good swing and misses that that guy would get when he would run it into effective velocity. And I, I like watching that stuff. You know, I don't necessarily follow any one specific team, but I like to follow specific players. And right now, I think Max Scherzer may be the best in the game at pitching to effective velocity. Whether he knows what he's doing or not, it is enjoyable to get in there and watch and see how he mixes based on fastball, breaking ball changeup, all these different things that he's mixing and matching, seeing how a hitter is adjusting to a swing and then changing it off of that. So, you know, effective velocity also plays into what the hitter's doing, and that's probably way more than we need to get into because that could be a long discussion in itself. Uh, but, you know, like our, our title implies, it's a lot more than velocity. It's, it's way more in understanding 
how your stuff plays off of itself and then you know finding a way to, to make that effective velocity work for you and i don't want to go too deep down the rabbit hole on that because i know we're not necessarily talking on it <laughs> you you answered a question for me that has been burning in my mind so when i wrote this post that velocity doesn't get you to the uh to the championship as a major league pitcher there was a, a part of my analysis i looked at the strikeout percentage related to to the fastball and the fastball only explained 21 percent of that metric that means that almost 80 percent of why strikeouts or percentages increase are they're they're related to other factors and so you know just hearing you describe that now it makes total sense is that you know the effective velocity is that is that big piece of that 80 percent of what's you know separating pitchers that you know two guys that throw 92 miles an hour alone you know if, if all things being equal it only explains 21 percent of their strikeout percentage so man i appreciate that that, that was interesting insight. And I, and I think it's important to note that you don't need effective velocity to be successful. But to be the best in the game, those guys do it. It doesn't matter what era of baseball you're looking in or however you want to define it. The bullseye is the bullseye. And for the guys who hit the bullseye, those are really good number one starters. And Again, this has been my big complaint with all levels of baseball is finding an ace is that's not easy to do. But you don't need to necessarily have 80 grade stuff to be an ace. If you can pitch to effective velocity, you can be an ace. You can do those things. But if you have a guy who has really good stuff and understands effective velocity, they call those Hall of Famers. You know, so you look at Randy Johnson, really good with effective velocity. You look at a guy like Nolan Ryan. As soon as he understood how to use his curveball, he became a Hall of Famer. You look at guys, you know, on the other end of the coin, we use Tommy Malone as an example. Not a, not a Hall of Famer, but that's a usable big leaguer. Not because his stuff is so good, but because he understands how to use effective velocity. And whether he calls it effective velocity, pitching backwards, throwing to however it is you want to use it, that's where you really start understanding how to make your development work for you when it comes to pitch percentages, pitch location, and the cool thing about effective velocity is I've, I've read a lot of game reports in the professional side. And I've not only worked for an organization, but I've consulted with roughly three organizations to where I've been able to get in there and read the game reports and see what the coaches are writing. And a lot of times you'll hear, oh, he got pummeled in double A because he just didn't command the ball well enough. That's a terrible excuse because if you understand effective velocity – if you're missing with your fastball, you know where you can throw in general area the next pitch to induce soft contact. So it's not because he was wild that you know this, this player got pummeled or beaten up. It's because he didn't understand how to pitch that specific day. And for a starting pitcher, they used to get 40 starts throughout a season. Now a guy, your, your number one or your number two, might get 38, might get 35. But in general, out of 40 starts, you have 10 outings that no matter what you do, you're going to absolutely go out there and make people turn tail and run. You're borderline unhittable. You're going to have 10 outings that no matter what you do, nothing goes your way. You're going to get the bad hop. You're going to get the broken bat that you know hits just for the perfect ground rule double that clears the bases. You don't have that great feel. There's nothing you can really do on those days. But in between that, you have 20 that based on your process, based on the understanding of what you do, 
pulls you in one direction or the other. And that's the difference between the guys who stay in the big leagues for a long time or even the guys who get to keep a starting role in college is they're able to take those 20 outings that you just wake up, you're not really sure how it goes, and you swing those towards your good outings, and that's a difference maker. You know, a 10-10 and 10 pitcher in the big leagues, probably making about a million dollars a year. If you go 12-8, and eight, that's worth a lot more money when it comes down to it. So if you can take those and just add two more wins onto your record or add four more wins onto your record, whatever it is you're doing to sway those could-be outings in the right direction, that's what explains the difference between fastball velo and your, your success. So fastball velo, yeah, it's important, but it's way more than just your velocity. It's understanding all those nuances that everyone says is way too hard to quantify, but in reality, it's already been quantified. We've been talking about it for a long time. You can pull it up on Baseball Savant, understand tunnel. You can understand release height, release side. Oh, it's release height, release side. Well, there's also the factor of tunnel in that, and then your ability to effectively velocity use effective velocity off your tunnel um, and understanding those movement sequences and how to do that. So in a nutshell, to answer your question on what's a good sequence, it depends on where you just threw the last pitch. Because everyone, you know, nobody prepares – you know, the Boy Scouts motto, I was never a Boy Scout. Ask anyone. I'm not a great candidate for that type of stuff. But if you, what is it, always be prepared? Is that the motto? What do they have in Canada? The, always be prepared. Always fine. be prepared? Okay. So be prepared, yeah. You, if you're not prepared, you know, if, if you have your plan of fastball in, slider away, slider a little further away, fastball up and in, you're banking on having perfect command with all those pitches. Not going to happen. I hate to break it to you. But if you have, if I miss with here, then I know what I can go to after that. That's a good sequence is understanding your velocity spreads between each one of your pitches and then how you make those stay within your effective velocity ranges based on where you're throwing at in the strike zone. Yeah. You know, spending time with Andrew Heaney when he was with the Angels, I used to ask because major league pitchers get a ton of data, you know, in terms of preparing for batters. And I always wanted to, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, how does the how does the professional pitcher comprehend that much information, you know, in terms of what, you know, uh, the hitter swings at or what, you know, what they do in certain counts. And I talked to Andrew Heaney. He's like, well, first, what I do is I need to know my strengths. I need to pitch to my strengths. You know, scouting reports tell you what they do in certain pitches, but certain pitchers don't have confidence in what the scouting report is saying because it doesn't make sense to their pitching repertoire. So what he would do is he would look at this data and he would say, what are my dagger in the heart pitches for each one of those guys? What do I know is going to work that I have for each one of those pitchers? And what was interesting is he said he would play back in his head how he would set them up when he knew that, you know, he needed to give them the dagger, how he put that together. So I always thought that that was interesting in terms of preparing because it's like, you know, what you're saying is have a plan. Like these guys just don't go into a game and just decide to start throwing whatever. You know, they they have an idea of what they want to do. And I think younger pitchers, they need to start to develop that habit. And our coaches have to get them to actually understand the game, you know, over lighting up a radar gun. You know what I mean? So that's kind of my rant on things is I think we're we're developing throwers. In my opinion, we're starting to go and worry about more about throwers. Guys aren't throwing to targets anymore. They're grabbing big, heavy weighted implements, light implements, and they're throwing into a wall or a net, you know, where we need to also focus, you know, that might get them a college scholarship that may get them drafted. 
but that's not going to mean they're going to make it to the major league level and look after their families for centuries and become one of the greatest in the game where there has to be a plan in my opinion. Yeah. And that's that. And I, I agree hundred percent is it's, is anyone can develop a thrower, but developing a pitcher is completely different. And one of the examples I love to use is you remember Connor Lillis white. Oh yeah. He Canadian. was, Oh my gosh. He was one of my favorite guys ever. And you know, we had, he was, he played in the same division or the same, same level that I was coaching at in college. And we faced up against him one year in a regional. And he actually ended up beating a player named Clayton Vecting, who went on to go play a little bit of pro ball. And, you know, Clayton Vecting was a fastball slider guy, occasionally had a, had feel for his changeup. And again, if I if I knew what I knew now about teaching changeups, I really feel like we would have ended up winning that ball game because, you know, Clayton was a two-pitch pitcher. Connor, Connor Lillis White, you know, like like you said, Canadian guy. Um, he played for University of British Columbia. He was a, a four-seam fastball with really good properties, and he threw one of the most unique breaking balls I've ever seen in my life. And I think it was 2015 or 2014, I can't remember the exact year, he beat us 1-0 to zero in the regional in Santa Santa Clarita, California. It was one nothing until the, the top of the ninth, and it was a pitching duel between those two guys, Clayton Vecting and Connor Lillis-White. And what ended up happening was we we had a leadoff walk and Clayton hung a slider. He just backed it up right over the middle of the plate, left-handed hitter, pow, over the trees. They took the lead two to one, and we couldn't score in the ninth to, to win the ball game. We we got knocked out of the of the uh, of the regional. We didn't get to go to the World Series. Twelve months later, we're, we're Clayton's graduated. He's moved on, and we're facing Connor Lillis White again in the opening round or the second game. So of the of the regional, in the winners bracket, and. Connor Lewis White's thrown. We've already described him, and we have a, a left-hander pitching named Jordan Moak. Jordan Moak, on a good day, may have run the ball at about 76 miles an hour, but he could spin a breaking ball. And you know, we didn't have the Rapsodo and the pitch development tools at that at that time, but I would guess he probably had about 23 inches of depth on a curveball, and he could spin that thing and throw it for a strike whenever he needed to, and he could throw a changeup blindfolded, and he could put a fastball wherever you needed to, needed it to go. And what ended up happening is we won two to one. Connor Lillis White, I think you'll look it up, he struck out about 14 and, and, and Moak struck out 16. And it wasn't because his stuff was more overpowering. It's because we used effective velocity to make his fastball look like it was 105 miles an hour. Yeah. It's slow, a little slower further away, a little slower further away, 78 up and in, hitters are tied up. And I remember you know, when, when I took a job with the Angels, Connor was in low A with the angels. And I said, Hey, uh, I just, I, I remember, you know, running into you here and there, we faced you guys and I coached at Vanguard and he's like, how did that left-hander beat me? And that was the first thing he told me is how did that left-hander beat me through like 40 miles an hour? And it's just put it into effective velocity. And that Jordan Moak probably won about over the course of three years for me at Vanguard, probably won about 19 games is a starting pitcher. He pitched in the world series for us, won some games in the world series throwing you know, below, below the speed limit, not like that. That's not supposed to happen. But if you know how to develop those tools and teach people how to pitch, teach them how to tunnel the ball and understand you don't need to be precise to be successful. You just need to be effective. You really start opening up a lot of opportunities for guys. He's never, he's not going to play in the big leagues, but he got his schooling paid for. That's awesome. Um, we're at 45 minutes here. I think, uh, 
a couple things we still wanted to talk about, but I think we're going to save that for another round. Um, but this was fantastic. I definitely learned a lot. I hope everybody else did. Um, if you liked it, please subscribe. Um, if you're watching it on YouTube, uh, same thing, subscribe, hit the like button. Um, check us out on, um, wherever else you know, podcasts are. And, uh, always we, we want to hear your questions. Uh, happy to, uh, happy to answer just about anything. And until next time.